0: So today we start uh, the season of Advent. Some of you who's grown up with this season, who who's celebrated Advent before? Okay, okay, okay. You know, this is a, a yearly ri- rhythm. Some some that haven't done this, this might seem strange or odd, a foreign thing. Maybe like um, I know when I first kind of was telling Rach about it and encouraging us to do it, she. I kind of thought it was just a buzzkill, a reason for me to, like, not let her play, you know, Amy Grant and Mariah Carey Christmas music pre-Thanksgiving. So, um, so, I think it would be best for probably all of us to clear up a few misconceptions about Advent. A few things Advent isn't and a few things it is. First, Advent isn't a way to try to fool ourselves as if Christ hasn't already come. Like we could, you know, suspend our imaginations or that we'd want to live that way even if we were able to. What Advent is, is really looking at those terms in which he did come. Like looking at the, the way Jesus came into the world in his birth. The way he came in amidst great expectations, but also kind of by surprise in a literally unbelievable way so that we're a little better prepared for a second coming. What Advent isn't is just kind of a bunch of new things to do. uh, Practicing kind of arcane disciplines to better ourselves or deny ourselves or make our spirituality more sophisticated or interesting. What it is, what Advent is, is making room to connect with Christ daily, minute by minute. It's our... Winter cleaning, we clear out a lot of the clutter that we've accumulated. We sharpen some of our dull expectations for when and how and where God will show up in our lives, past, present, and future. What Advent isn't is something theoretical or sentimental, a time in December to bask in, like, you know, uh, some sort of nativity crash that's really I- idealistic and idyllic it's not something that doesn't have anything to do with our everyday lives what it is is vitally connected to some of our most real emotions our habits of thinking, our feeling and our uh, the ways we love the things we do in our lives the things we hope for and, and love and and the joy we have and our expectations for peace. So when we talk about Advent, we talk about the lead up to Christmas. But more than that, we mean Christ coming. Next week, we'll hear the Nativity story through the lips of kids. about How Jesus came humbly and surprisingly. Without a claim and a time and place that didn't really have much room for him. And it's going to be kind of a challenge for us next week to see through like the unadulterated cuteness how, you know, bizarre and odd that, w- that way for God to come happened. On Christmas Eve with our brothers and sisters from Gathering Church we're, we'll again hear Luke's story of Jesus' coming to an unwed version who received him to lowly shepherds in the fields to a barn or cave or wherever Livestock huddles in the cold and and will light candles to signify Christ's illuminating arrival in the darkness. We sing all these songs that say the same. But Advent, Jesus' coming, also refers to the end of the story, too. When the resurrected Christ appeared to his disciples, he promised his return, his coming. In Revelation, John shows Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, returning to judge and make right everything that sin and death has destroyed to overturn injustice, to bring shalom, eternal peace and wholeness, new creation. This kind of return and the kind of kingdom Jesus promises to bring seems really far off to us. It seems so unlike what we see in experience is tempting to kind of sweep it under the rug or to, to, to fantasize about it or to screen it out completely. But this is when we find ourselves in. It's always good to know when, when we are and where we are. We're between two advents, between two comings. Exactly now and here that being a Christian means to learn how to live appropriately between these two comings. Under Jesus's Rescuing rule and in the power of the spirit between two advents, so christ's birth is God's breaking into our world and Christ's future coming, his return to establish kingdom and to unite with his bride. This is kind of a a little more interesting way to think about the Christian life than just a grocery list of rules. this is this kind of keeps us on our haunches. It keeps us ready. I remember when I was in Catholic school growing up, we would sing this this song in elementary school, Stay awake, be ready. Do you, do you guys know that song? It's kinda, it's a little creepy, but it's kind of awesome. It says, Stay awake, be ready. There's claps and hand motions here. You do not know the hour when the Lord is coming. Stay awake, be ready. The Lord is coming soon. And then there's allah, and so forth. But this is a really different mentality for us. This readiness. This this mentality means living faithfully in strained circumstances because nothing is beyond God's reach. He could act at any moment. Jesus has come in the past and He will come in the future. So our present has meaning. It has purpose. It's pregnant with expectation. But I'll pause fast here because. This can make some people kind of anxious this kind of living, this expectant living, right? Doesn't it kind of seem out of control or exhausting to live this way? So that, we, I think we've got to realize the difference between patience and expectation, right? So if patience I'll do it this way. If patience is a one, and expectation is a nine. Um, Patience can lead to, to laziness, we get really satisfied. But expectation can lead to anxiety, we're we're so worked up. And and I, I think this kind of this kind of waiting that we're looking to do during Advent is more like like holding on to one and holding on to nine. It's not just some sort of average five in the middle or four and a half in the middle. Cultivate a holy patience that trusts in God, but it doesn't get lazy and content. It, doesn't forget all that's wrong with the world and ourselves. But at the same time, we cultivate a holy expectation that hungers and thirsts for more and anticipates and longs for a Savior and the salvation He brings. But we're not frantic, we're not anxious, we're not cynical or detached, or we don't get exhausted because it doesn't depend on us. So the the best way I know how to kind of cultivate this expectation, this patience personally is, is through the Psalms. And that's why um, our reading, and, and there's a bookmark that you can take home that'll help you keep on track with this. It, it, we're, we're going through the Psalms each week and um, and the, the lectionary picks, picks one out, kind of dealing with our themes that, that we're lighting our Advent wreath around. The, the Psalms are, and we chose the Psalms because the Psalms are God's people's songbook The, the the world that Jesus and his followers inhabited was a was a psalm shaped world the other day my dad and I were driving to the hardware store to pick up some lumber to build some shelves and we landed on a radio station and I didn't know it existed it's somewhere on the 95 part of the dial and I knew every word to every song, one after another, and it was awesome. It was like Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Collective Soul and Silver Chair and STP. And then the verve pipe came on and you you guys know the song The Freshman? Oh, it's so awesome. And I was transported to 1997 in Daytona Beach. My brother and I were probably, you know, headed on. Uh, while we were playing one-on-one street hockey or like biking down A1A. And I knew every word because my world is a 90s alternative rock-shaped world. I didn't even know it until we went to that hardware store. The world (laughs) inhabited by Israel and Jesus and Paul and the early church was psalm-shaped. Mine was a 90s rock-shaped world because that sticks with you. A lot of times when Jeff and I um, we have office hours on Wednesday and we're here and, and uh, <coughs> James Charles will come and, and hang out with us and it doesn't take very long to realize that James' James's world is a Michael Jackson-shaped world, you know? They, the, these songs stick with you. They, they come back with you. They're in the background because songs do that. You know, they play in your head when, even when they're not playing anymore. The Psalms do that. Have you ever gotten out of the car before a song was over and you couldn't let that song go until you actually heard the end of the song, even if it was like hours later? That's kind of what I'm hoping happens with these psalms during Advent, that they continue to play in the background. For sure, these psalms, the actual material of them, they're the psalmist's own thoughts and feelings, but they're, they're also Israel's thoughts and feelings God's people they're they're the churches they're the thoughts and feelings of the oppressed they they can be our thoughts and feelings and and they certainly were Jesus's thoughts and feelings if you go through the gospels you find over and over these psalms are on Jesus's own lips perhaps we do well to keep coming back to them and learn how to express ourselves to have words on our lips when we need them have our thought lives shaped, our hopes and loves and joys and images of peace formed. Maybe we need seasons, whole seasons to learn how to pray like this. I think of um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer He talks about prayer in the Psalms. and He said if we want to read and pray the prayers of the Bible and especially the Psalms we don't first ask what they have to do with us but we have to ask what they have to do with Jesus Christ. And when we do that, it doesn't depend on whether the psalms express adequately what we feel at a given moment in our heart. If we can pray aright, perhaps it's necessary that we pray contrary to our own heart. This is the formation part. Not what we want to pray is important, but what God wants us to pray. So I ask... um, As you listen, Joe's going to come up, and you can um, read into that, Mike. As Joe reads parts of Psalm 80, ask yourself, what does this have to do with Jesus, this song? What does it have to do with me? How can this prayer of hope become my prayer of hope, our prayer of hope? Thanks, Joe.
1: Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who sit enthroned between the cherubims, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us a source of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved.
0: Thanks, Joe. Restore us, Lord God Almighty, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Restore us, Lord God Almighty, make your face shine on us that we might be saved. That chorus beats like a drum throughout this exhausted poem and it asks God for the salvation that he's promised. That salvation that to some measure God's people have already felt and experienced. Beginning of the psalm, it addresses God and entreats Him. It knows God is the one who gathers His people when they're lost like sheep, who has the power to wake up and to save us. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we might be saved. The psalm then shifts to a lament, a, a protest songwriter speaks for his people questioning God, how long? How long? Have you ever prayed that? How long? Have you ever maybe even yelled that at God? How long? How long will it take to find someone who will really love me? How long is it going to be before I snap out of this funk? How long will it be before I don't have to look in the mirror and be ashamed at what I see? How long will I have to keep going to bed hungry? or how long will it take us until we can get pregnant? How long will I keep getting passed over or ignored or made fun of? How long? How long? God's people knew His deliverance. know his rescue. They knew it when they were in Egypt and they were enslaved. When they were freed from oppression and despair, they were hopeless and then God showed up. And the fact that God showed up (coughs) that one huge time put them in that weird spot that so many of us live in. Unable to deny that there is hope but unable to hope for the one that can save us. Perhaps that's why our hopes get really spread out or distorted. Not that we don't hope, but that we're kind of afraid to hope or our hopes are weak. They're cautious rather than uh, audacious. Our our hopes are tinged with cynicism. Our, Our lips have cried how long without an apparent answer, just enough times to make us forget the times that God has answered. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we might be saved. What does this have to do with Jesus? With us? Well, it has everything to do with Jesus. Jesus is God's answer to our cries for restoration, for salvation. Restore us that we might be saved. Jesus knew these words. He spoke these words. He experienced their pain and longing He himself was the answer, God's people's Messiah. He would be the good shepherd sent to seek and save the lost. This salvation came to us in the midst of violence and pain, strife, and uncertainty. Even as that nativity scene was being set, the Gospels tell the story, and it doesn't really make it into all the children's books about mass genocide because the the powers were being threatened. They had to dispose of all these Jewish males because there was a king on the horizon. This, of course, mirrors the violence and pain and strife and uncertainty that surrounded God's people's own exodus. Read back and remember how Moses' mom put him in a basket to avoid this very type of death. Moses, of course, would lead the Israelites out of Egypt and into God's promised land for them. Jesus is the agent of restoration and salvation and his return also. Sometimes it's hard to even imagine that with the tangle of things that sin has made. It's hard to imagine things being set right. That someone could actually redeem and restore and rebuild the wreckage of a sinful world. Oftentimes a sin that we inflict. But there he is, defeating evil, triumphing over Babylon's sin and ushering in new creation through new Jerusalem, coming down to heaven from earth, to earth from heaven. And Jesus does this even now. He restores us. This morning, if, if you're tired, let Him restore you. Rest in His love. Rest. If you walk around all day wondering what people are going to think or what people are saying about you, know that He thinks you're lovely and lovable. Let Him restore you. He's not surprised by your weakness or your failures. He wants... Nothing more than for you to know Him and to draw near to Him. And He'll never turn you away. This morning, if you're scared, find security. A hope that's sure and, that's a sure and steady anchor for your soul. Know that His perfect love will cast out your fears. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make Your face shine on us that we might be saved. And how can this prayer become our prayer of hope? When we soak ourselves in prayers like these from the Psalms and in stories of Jesus' first coming, we start to realize that the main prerequisite for hope is seeming hopelessness. The main prerequisite for real hope is seeming hopelessness. That God seems to show up when it looks pretty bleak. That the morning breaks in when the darkness is deepest. We learn that restoration and salvation are always possible and that restore us Lord God Almighty is an appropriate thing to ask God. Restoration and Salvation are possible even in places as deep and bleak and complicated as, as our headlines this week as, as Ferguson. It seems there's an impasse, right? There's, there's no room for healing. No possibility for change or reconciliation. And we cry, um, we cry, restore us. We continue to hope for the God that came at Christmas to break in on us. I was struck this, this past week by a post I read in one of those like viral um, internet posts from a professional football player talking about Ferguson. And he was, in the, he was trying to kind of process out loud this decision. He listed all the things he was feeling, and, and this is so kind of psalm-like to do that. <laughs> He he ranged from frustration to anger to sympathy to hopelessness. He wrote, I feel hopeless because I've lived long enough to expect things like this to continue to happen. I'm not surprised and at some point my little children are going to inherit the weight of being a minority and all that it entails. Hopeless. But interestingly enough, the very next paragraph he continues, I'm hopeful (laughs) because I know that while we still have race issues in America we enjoy a much different normal than (coughs) than those of our parents and grandparents. I see in my personal relationships with teammates and friends and mentors it's a beautiful thing. This football player, a Christian is able to be hopeful precisely at the point of his own hopelessness. Somewhere somewhere Deep down, I think he, he understands this kind of divine logic. That hope shows up, that God shows up, and doesn't disappoint, even though he remains unseen, even in the most hopeless times. And then we look at, at our headlines, and we see, we see violence in Ferguson. And, and sometimes I think that, that kind of violence we see on the streets of Missouri is... It's symptomatic of our hopelessness. Not just theirs, but ours, all of ours, humanity's hopelessness. You see, some in the African-American community felt so hopeless, so unheard and mistreated, so powerless, that they felt the need to destroy. (laughs) In most cases, their destruction hurts themselves and people in their own community. When when things don't look like they could ever change, then... It seemed like, when it, when it seems that black bodies don't even matter to America, it's easy to see why violence kind of erupts. That destruction is born out of despair. In, in a weird way, I kind of understand it. These riots are kind of a, a, an inappropriate physical way to say how long. I read a commentator Christina Cleveland, and she said, make no mistake, our God is a God of justice. The young black men who launch Molotov cocktails at the police are misappropriating God's justice by taking it into their own hands. But the rage they feel is the rage that God feels towards injustice. The rage they feel is the rage God feels towards injustice. In a sense, they are imagining forth God's justice in an unjust world. So when we turn on the news and we see images like these, before we turn away, we need to try to figure out how to think and feel, how to, what a hopeful approach looks like. For one, looking at Ferg- Ferguson, hopefully uh, realizes that a, a situation like this is perhaps one of the first places that Jesus would show up. Like the garden where he was betrayed, he might turn to these young men lobbing glass bottles and firing shots into the air and tell them what he told Peter and his disciples. Put away your swords. No more of this. Then he went and touched the soldier's ear to heal it. Violence, our violence, their violence often comes from feeling out of control. So we grab and We grasp whatever seems to let us get the power that we don't feel. This happens with torches in the streets. It happens in our homes with abusive words to someone we love but treat poorly. Violence is a symptom of hopelessness and a kind of a fake sort of replacement hope. We wind up hoping in ourselves to restore and save ourselves. Advent hope looks to God for restoration and healing, for vengeance and justice. Hope that might seem far off at times, but the only hope that's really worth our longing. So we can choose, like the psalmist, to cry out, how long? And then move into despair, or we can start to remember and to share with others how God has rescued us in the past. And then maybe we'll be able to see all the, the million little signposts of grace and the encouragements around us that point us towards God's redemption and renewal of all things. So our Advent season our living appropriately between two comings. I hope our senses keep getting retuned so we can recognize and expect God to show up and do things in surprising ways that we expect God to move by his spirit in dark situations in unlikely people and places to long and to hope for more complete restoration (coughs) that that longing makes us participate anticipate that sort of restoring work now here I hope that anyone in this room that struggles with hopelessness or depression encounters Jesus during this season. Because he's our, he's our only hope. He's the only one worthy of our hope. I pray that that hopelessness shifts from despair to the kind of desperation that leads to our salvation. There's the same kind of desperation in our psalm. Restore us. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make Your face shine on us that we might be saved. You guys pray with me? Father, we praise You. We trust You um, as the only One that can save us. We beg You to restore us Restore us when we're tired. Restore us when we're disappointed or upset. Restore this world that you love so much that is so broken and hurting. So corrupted that it it, it hurts itself. We hurt ourselves. Father, uh, during this next month or so, reform our hopes around You. Reorient them to You. Because you, you deserve them. You're the only one that deserves them. Father, make us peaceful people knowing that we can trust You. Prepare us for Jesus to come again in glory to judge and to make right and to renew and to bring new creation in His kingdom.